0: Good morning. The text this morning is Genesis 15, 1 through 5. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus." and he counted it to him as righteousness.
1: Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's only on the basis of your broken body and your shed blood that I can preach a sermon today. I can only stand here by grace in the only begotten Son of God, and and so I do. I stand trusting in you alone, Father, for my forgiveness, for my empowerment, for my insight, for my articulation. And I confess, Lord, in the hearing of all that I depend upon you, Father, and I forsake trust in myself or any external things. Please help me with this, Lord. And it's only by the broken body and the spilled blood that each of us can receive the Word of God today in a fruitful way. It's only by your sacrifice and your power working in our lives that our hearts are soft enough to even care about the Word of God, much less receive it as a seed of life. But in Christ we do just that, Lord. And I pray that the Word would now implant deeply into our hearts and into our minds and into our souls. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the ministry of this church, that it would sprout and grow and produce much fruit inside of all of us. Lord, I really trust in the power of Your Word. You promise us that it always goes forth, accomplishing all the purposes for which You sent it. So I trust You, and I trust Your Word. And I ask you now to do just that, Lord. I ask you for the glory of your name and the good of your people to accomplish your purposes through your word for us now. In Jesus' mighty and merciful name, we pray these things. Amen. Well, last week we began in earnest to meditate together on the life of Abram, the father of faith. He was the one that God chose of his own free will to be the conduit through which the Lord would bless all of the nations of the earth. And in that respect, God commanded Abram to leave the place where he was living at the time, a place called Haran. And he commanded him to make a 750-mile journey on foot with all of his people and with all of his possessions down into the land of Canaan, which we now call Israel. And Abram did just that. Once there... Abram, being a man of worship, built an altar and worshiped the Lord. And God again confirmed his promises to Abram. But there was in those days a great famine in the land, which, as you will remember, drove Abram down into Egypt for a season. Out of fear of Pharaoh, he instructed his wife Sarai to tell the Egyptians that, that she was in fact his sister so that they would not kill him and take her. And so she did that. Pharaoh ended up taking Sarai into her his household, into his harem, But the Lord was not pleased with this arrangement, you'll remember. And so the Lord greatly afflicted Pharaoh and his household and in fact caused Pharaoh to bring Abraham before him and and, and command him to leave the land. He ordered his troops to protect Abraham and he let Abram leave Egypt with all the possessions that he had acquired while he was there. And that's where we pick the story up, actually at the beginning of chapter 13. So if you'll turn there with me and I won't be reading a lot of it, but you can at least peruse the story as we go through. Beginning of chapter 13, it says again that Abram left Egypt with all he had, which I take to mean all the things that he brought into Egypt and all the things that he acquired while he was in Egypt. And he left with Lot as well. And from Egypt, they journeyed into the southernmost part of what we call Israel, which they called at that time the Negev. Let me just say a word about Lot. You remember from chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, who Lot was. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Remember, Abram had a brother named Haran who had died early and left his son Lot as a young boy, and so Abram's father Terah brought Lot into their family. And then later, when Abram's father Terah died, Lot essentially, or Abram essentially inherited Lot. Now, I don't think Abram was begrudgingly uh, doing that, but I just want to be clear that the reason Lot ended up with Abram, it was because uh, Lot's father Haran died, and then Abram's father Terah died, and in a sense, Abram ended up inheriting them. Abram entered into Egypt as a wealthy man, as we know, and you'll notice there in chapter 13, verse 1, that it says he left Egypt a very wealthy man. He had lots of livestock, he had lots of silver, he had lots of gold, he had lots of servants, and he had all the power that goes along with such things as this. But he was not the typical rich man, if you will. What I mean to say is that even though Abraham was a very wealthy man, he was not impressed with his wealth. He was not the kind of guy that was preoccupied with his wealth. He was not the kind of guy who trusted in his wealth, but instead he really did in his heart trust the Lord, and he demonstrated that by worshiping the Lord everywhere he went. So having gone to the Negev, they now traveled farther up into the north, back to that place where Abram had first pitched his tent. You may remember from last week. He pitched his tent somewhere between the cities of Bethel and Ai, and there he had built an altar to the Lord. And he traveled back now, up back up to that place with all the new things he had acquired, and with Lot with him. And Moses simply says that he called upon the name of the Lord again while he was there. Now I take that to mean not that Abram just worshipped the Lord once, sort of that he had a, a, a sort of a inaugural worship service when he ended up back in that part of, the, of Israel. Rather, I take this to mean that this was Abram's way of life, that he was a man of worship. And as soon as he got to the new place where he had settled again, he began this pattern of worshiping the Lord. It reminds me much of Luke 5.16 where Luke tells us that Jesus, even though he was often pressed with the needs of ministry, that he would find, often go into desolate places where he could pray. Jesus was constantly stealing away with his father, seeking his company and his counsel, and I think Abram was much like that. Abram was a man who had much wealth, but he trusted in the Lord, and he expressed that by worshiping the Lord everywhere that he went. And I, in my own heart, in my own life, and in the life of this church, I so long for us to see this and and to live by this pattern in the days and weeks and months to come. To live a life of faith, beloved, is to live a life of worship, and to live a life of worship is about love. It's not about performing our duty before the Lord. It's not about conforming to external pressures. It's not about the fear of what will happen if we don't do the things that God has called us to do, namely, worshiping Him. Rather, worshiping the Lord and walking by faith is a matter of being in love with this God who called Abram and who calls us, and who has promised to bring us into eternal life through simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ. The particulars of our lives do and will differ greatly from the particulars of Abram's life, but this one thing remains the same, that to live a life of faith is to live a life of worship. And I wonder, as you search your heart, as you think about your own life, does your life look like that? Everywhere you go, do you worship the Lord? Do you, in essence, set up an altar to Him and make sure that the worship of God is the heartbeat of your life? Well, that's what Abram was like, and I do think that's what the life of faith is like. Because Abraham was so wealthy, but also so generous, Lot too, had many possessions and many herds and this was a good thing, but it did come to cause some difficulties. You'll see there a little bit later in the story that the land that they were living on was a little bit limited for all the flocks and herds that they had there. And so Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen were striving against one another, I, I suppose, over the pick of the land. They most likely were arguing with each other about who should get what land at what time and your sheep are eating my pastures and your sheep are eating my pastures and all this. And it was going on and on and on and it got to be too much and Abram decided to step in and do something about it. Now you have to understand, he had all the power in this situation. Everything that was involved in this, Abram essentially owned. But rather than flexing his muscles and exercising his power against Lot, Abram chose to be gracious like the God who saved him and who called him. In fact, he was very, very gracious to Lot. He called a meeting with Lot and he said to him, Listen, I love you. You're my family. I want no strife with you. And so here's what we'll do. I want you to survey the whole land. Just lift up your head and look every which way. You choose whatever land you want and then I will go in the opposite direction. Now, beloved, I just can't imagine a very wealthy man, say like a a guy like Donald Trump, I can't imagine a guy like that making a decision like this at this moment. Abram had amassed a, a fortune throughout his life. He was a very wealthy man. Abram, out of the kindness of his heart, had brought Lot into his family and raised him as his own. Lot essentially was like Abram's son, even though technically he was his nephew. Abram was, was very generous with his wealth, and so he made Lot a very wealthy man too. He was not stingy. He gave Lot everything. But you have to stop and realize, everything Lot owned actually belonged to Abram. Everything he had came from Abram. So Abram had all the power in this situation, and he well could have rebuked Lot and just taken whatever he wanted, leaving Lot with the rest. But that's not the way that he did it. Rather, he allowed Lot to pick anything he wanted Abraham left to settle for the rest. I really, really admire him for his way of handling this situation. I think it shows the depth of his faith in God. So Lot did lift up his eyes. He did survey the land. And when he looked off to the east, he saw the Jordan Valley. That's the place where the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. And it was in those days a very fertile land. And, And to this day, it pretty much still is a fertile land. And so Lot saw that it was well watered. The Bible there says that it was even like the garden of God, extremely prosperous and well watered. And so he, I think, clung to the things of this earth. I think he felt a little greedy in his heart. And he said, I'll take that land. And Abram simply honored his decision and let him go. And Lot did just that. Lot went down into the valley of Jordan and Abram ended up settling in the area of Canaan where they, in fact, already were. Now, what Lot did not know was that with that prosperous land, he also inherited the city of Sodom. And we're all sinners against the Lord. I don't think one of us would stand up in this room and say that we're not sinners, but the Bible itself says that the men of Sodom were very great sinners against the Lord. Some cities are more debaucherous than others. And Lot chose what appeared to be a good land, but in fact, it was a very wicked land and a debaucherous land. This will become important in a few minutes. But first of all, I just want to Pause here for a second and reflect on Abram's actions because we have to see that it took a lot of faith for him to do this. He trusted in the Lord. He loved the Lord so much that he didn't have to cling to the things of this world. Beloved, he had every right to take the pick of the land. You know, I was just in India where we have farms there at the Baraka house and, and this whole thing about land makes so much more sense to me having been there. The kind of land you get matters when you're a farmer. It matters a lot. And Abram could have chosen anything he wanted, but instead he graciously let go of the things of this world because he trusted in God. Because he was clinging to God, he did not need to cling to the things of this world. And as it was with Abram, so it is with us. I think that one of the major gauges of the, of the actual state of faith in our life is how much we cling to the things of this world. Now, for some of us, that means money. For some of us, it means possessions. Some of us struggle with greed and the desire for stuff. For others of us, that's not the thing at all. But maybe it's a desire for honor. Maybe it's a desire for recognition. Maybe it's a desire for certain relationships that you just want to have and have to have just the way that you want them. Maybe it's a desire for certain pleasures of this world. Maybe it's a desire for sloth, for laziness, for self-indulgence. I don't know what it is. There are many things in this world to which we can cling and what I'm saying is that to the extent we trust in the Lord and cling to Him, we just have no need to cling to the things of this world. So it's a practical measure we can use to gauge the actual state of faith in our lives. How tightly are you clinging to the things of this world? And I think as, you're, as you learn to cling to the Lord more, it just becomes more and more easy to let loose of the things of this world And in that way, our faith grows and grows. Abram was a man of great faith. We'll see in a minute, he was no superhero. But this was a man who loved the Lord. And because of that, he just didn't need to cling to the things of the world. As for him, the Lord appeared to him again. And just right after he made this decision, and he powerfully confirmed to Abram that he had done the right thing. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him. So now Abram's alone, probably wondering, did I do the right thing? Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is now the third time that God physically, visibly, audibly appeared to Abram and spoke to him. And specifically in this instance, he communicated two things. First of all, he reiterated to Abraham the promise that all the land that he saw was going to be given to him, north, south, east, and west. It didn't matter what Lot had just chosen to do. It didn't matter that Lot had just essentially secured all the land to the east. The Lord was saying, you did the right thing, and all of this land is yours. All of it is yours. Abram had freely given And now God confirmed in a powerful way that He was going to freely give back to Abram more than He could ever imagine. Abram let go of the things of this world and in this way received everything from the Lord. The second thing the Lord did was He promised to make Abram's offspring so vast as to be uncountable. Now He used dust here as a way of helping Abram get his mind around how many offspring he would have I don't know about you but I've never tried to count dust particles, you know, like wipe the dust off of a surface and start counting, but I'm assuming that even just on this surface there's quite a few particles, right? You imagine trying to count the particles of dust throughout all the earth. Last night uh, Kim and I talked about doing some spring cleaning here in the next few weeks cuz all that winter dust is all in the house and we're eager for it to leave. As I was putting the final touches on this sermon yesterday, I came to pray and I just said, Lord, as we're dusting the house, I pray every time I would see dust that I would remember your great promises to Abraham because they're just that great. If you can count dust, you can count Abram's offspring. You can count the greatness of the promise that God made to him. And with these promises, again, so powerfully confirmed, God invited Abraham to get up from where he was and to go throughout the land and to travel about and see the inheritance that God had given him. And I, this week I took out a topographical map and I, and you know, that shows you the heights of all the different parts of land and I saw that where Abraham traveled from where he was eventually ending up in Hebron, he ended up traveling in the very highest parts of the, of the, the territory we call Israel. So I can just imagine him, he didn't so much survey all the land. He didn't travel everywhere, but he went up on a very high place where he could see the entire land of Israel. And everything that he saw, God said, it's yours. It's yours. From the heights of the mountain just above Hebron, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the Dead Sea. You can see the whole entire area. And God used that to confirm to him, Abram, all this is yours, brother. Everything that you see is yours because my promises are sure. And so for whatever reason, Abram settled in the area of Hebron, a little south of where he was, but up in a very high place. And I'm just assuming, I've never been to Hebron, but I'm assuming that even from that city there's a good view. Perhaps that's why Abram chose to stay there. But for our purposes, I think the more important thing is, notice what he did when he got there in verse 18. As soon as he settled in Hebron, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord. This was a worshipful man, beloved. Beloved. Again, I don't think this means that he just built an altar and worshipped once. I think it essentially means he built a church. He built a place where the regular worship of God could characterize his life and the life of his family. And I just want us to ask again, is, is that what we're like? Are we like that? Every time you go into a new place or, or a new endeavor or a new sphere that God grants to you, is worship the first thing that comes to your mind? Certainly seems that it was that way for Abram, and I certainly hope that it will be that way for us as well. Now thinking about Lot, things didn't go so well for him. He did, in fact, choose a land that was fertile and and prosperous, very prosperous. But what he didn't know was that it was also tumultuous, and very soon after he moved there, that whole area was embroiled in a nasty war. The kings of that area, there were four or five of them, They were subject to a very powerful king up in the north of Israel, near Damascus. And that king ruled over them with an iron fist. And at some point, the kings in the area where Lot was decided they were going to rebel against him. His name, I've been trying to pronounce this for hours and hours this morning. I don't know if I can. It's Shed or Leomar. I'm just going to call him the king from now on, okay? Because I have no idea how to pronounce this. I literally, from about five in the morning, I started stirring up in, you know, from my sleep. And every time I would turn over, I was trying to figure out how to pronounce this guy's name so that I wouldn't boff it here in church this morning, but I I can't figure it out. So we'll just call him the king. He was the king that ruled in the north. For 12 years, he had ruled in that area. But in the 13th year, the people there decided they had had enough and the, the kings of Sodom in that area got together and rebelled against the king. This king, therefore, uh, rallied his forces in the 14th year, got all of his allies together, went down there and suppressed the rebellion. And initially it worked. But after some time, the kings of Sodom regrouped and made war against him again. This made the king very angry. And this time he crushed the rebellion. He captured all their people, took all their possessions and brought them back up to the north where his kingdom was centered. And this included Lot in everything that he possessed. So Lot had looked at this land and and decided to go there because he thought it would make him prosperous. But at the end of the day, he lost everything and he was taken captive by a foreign king to the northern part of Israel. And isn't life just like that for us so often? Hasn't it happened to you? It certainly happened to me many a time where something that I thought would be a blessing to me ended up being a curse to me. Something that I thought would prosper my life and I didn't bother praying about it to the Lord, but I thought, yeah, that's the right thing. I'm going to go after that thing. Didn't take the counsel of the Lord or the counsel of others. And it turned out to be the very thing that bit me in the back. And this certainly happened for Lot. He, he clung to the things of this world and he ended up losing everything. And that's basically the way it goes for us as well. But as it was for, as it is for us, so it was for him. God is immensely gracious and he had Lot's back. And the Lord made sure that word of what had happened got to Abram and as soon as Abram heard what had happened, he marshaled a force of seven or 318 warriors and they set out up to the north and they roundly defeated those kings up there. And not only did they defeat them in their backyard, but the way you read the story, if you take out a map and follow the progression of of the the geography, what you'll see is that Abram not only defeated them in their backyard, but chased them all the way to the, fur- the furthest northern reaches of the civilization in that area. He won a rousing victory is what is the point there in that part of chapter 14. And not only did he win the victory, but he recaptured all the possessions of Sodom. He recaptured all the people. And more importantly, he recaptured Lot and everything that belonged to him as well. So, having been victorious, Abram now returns to the area of Sodom, and the king of Sodom, out of gratefulness for what he had done, throws a great feast. It says there that he, he laid out bread and wine before them. That's simply a metaphor for saying he threw him a great banquet. He, they had a great party, and many attended. Among those in attendance was the king of Salem, which probably is short for Jerusalem. And that king's name was Melchizedek. I'll say more to you about who Melchizedek was, When we get to Hebrews chapter 7, which will probably be in two, three years, maybe four years, who knows. When we get to Hebrews 7, I'll say more about him. But as for now, just read the context of Genesis. And I think the the conclusion you must come to is that this was just a man who was a king and who also happened to be a high priest of Israel. Or of of God Most High, it says, not of Israel. So Melchizedek was a king, he was a high priest, And he came to this great feast and he honored the God of Abraham and he blessed Abraham and also he received the tithes from Abraham. Putting aside what we know from the letter to the Hebrews and just taking Genesis in its own context, I think that the point of this part of the story is actually not about Melchizedek as a priest, but it's about Abraham as a worshiper of God. It's saying to us that even when Abram won great victories and won great spoils and became greatly enriched, he did not take those riches for himself, but gave them up freely to the Lord. He tithed of everything that he had freely. Nobody asked him to do this. Nobody compelled him to do it. From his heart, he honored God with his wealth. That's the point of this story. This part of the story. And I know that this is true because immediately after it talks about his tithing, it turns to the king of Sodom and says that the king of Sodom made this deal with Abram. He said, listen, if you'll just give me the people back, you can have all the stuff that you captured. All the wealth of Sodom was great. And Abraham had just captured and the the king said, you can have it all. But Abram lifted his hand high and said, no, I will not do that. I already made a vow. To the Lord Most High that I would not take anything from you so that you could not say that you made me rich because the Lord Himself has made me rich. The Lord Himself is my treasure. The Lord Himself is all that I need. Beloved, Abram's heart was right with God. It was clung to God. And so he just didn't need the things of this world. He didn't need to cling to land. He didn't have to worry about tithing, so he freely tithed of all his possessions. And he didn't need to be worry about being enriched by an earthly king. God was his richness. God was his power. God was his everything. And so Abram did not need to cling to the things of this world. To use another word, Abram was content. He had a, a deep contentness in his heart because he walked by faith in God most high. This man had just risked life and limb for others, but his deepest allegiance was to the Lord. And he shows this by his faith. Last week we saw that Abram expressed his faith through simple obedience. God commanded, Abram did. This week we see that Abram also expresses his faith in God through contentment. Through not needing to cling to the things of this world. And as I said earlier, I think it's a sign in all of our lives. How much are you clinging to God? Well, think about how you're clinging to the things of this world. If your hands are holding the things of this world loosely, you're probably clinging to God well. And Abram certainly was doing that. Now, again, the Lord greatly honored Abram's mature but childlike faith, and He appeared to him now for a fourth time. Look there in chapter 15, verse 1. The Lord simply says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Very great. When a great God says something like, your reward will be very great, that means it will be very, very great. Now, I paused at this point in my meditation on the story and I just wondered, I said, Lord, that's a little odd of a thing for you to say to Abram. Fear not. Here's a guy who just went out to war and roundly defeated the most powerful kings in his area. For over a decade, these kings had ruled with an iron fist and Abram just wiped them off the map like they were nothing. Nothing. And the other kings that were left came and honored Abram. So my question is, what does this guy have to fear? Why would God say to Abram, fear not, when he had just won such a great victory? Well, I think it's because God sees into the hearts of human beings. And when he looked in Abram's heart, he saw a fear. He saw a a lack of faith about something that was crucial to the promises that God had made to him. And you know what it is. Specifically, Abram believed that God had the power to enact His promises, but he was starting to doubt that God could make a very old man and a very old woman have a child and therefore an heir. I mean, you just have to put yourself in his shoes, beloved. God had promised him that his his descendants would be greater than the dust of the earth, and yet he didn't even have one son. He didn't even have one daughter. He didn't even have one heir. And I could just hear his heart saying, God! How could it be that I would have so many millions of descendants when I don't even have one? What sense does this make? Probably Abraham was about 83, 84 years old at this time. Maybe 85 at the oldest. He was an old man. Old people don't have babies, right? They don't. So his fear was justified. God, until this moment, had not addressed the fear. But now, as a loving father, he put his finger right on it. And so he comes and he again reiterates the greatness of the promise, but this time he points to the stars of the sky. Now in our day, with so much ambient light from our cities, we don't see a lot of stars, but we know a lot more about the stars than Abram did. And we know that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trillions of stars out there in the sky. And God said to Abram, if you could count all those stars, then you could indeed count the offspring that will be yours through the child of promise. And at this point, Abram believed and, and Moses said Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram simply received the promise of God, and God affirmed that faith as though it was perfect obedience. And that kind of faith on behalf of Abram, where God speaks and he simply, just by childlike faith, says, Okay, God, if you say so, then I believe it. That kind of expression of faith was not just for him, but for us. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 4, 23 to 25. He said, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, beginning with Abram, the way that reconciliation between a holy God and unholy sinners works is simply this. God pours His blessing upon us through mercy. We receive it through simple childlike faith. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, it's really that simple. God touched the nerve of a fear of a lack of faith in Abram's heart, but He did so in order to pour blessing on Abram. Abram believed God, and God credited it as righteousness. He took it as though it was even perfect obedience. And so Abram says to the Lord, he says, Lord, well, who then will be my heir? He says, will it be Eliezer, my, one of the servants in my household? And God says, no, Abram, it will not be a servant. It will be your very own son. And with that promise so strongly reiterated, God once more came and made a sacred covenant with Abram in terms that he could understand. If you'll read later, uh, verses 9 through 21. You'll see the particulars of a a kind of covenant that God made with Abram. And to us, the particulars of that probably seem pretty strange. They laid out some animals, cut them in half, and just things that are strange to us. But I want to be clear that in Abram's day, this was not strange at all. In Abram's day, this was the way that you made a covenant. This was the way you made a solemn covenant. And so what I see God doing here now is, now this is now the fourth time God has appeared to Abram and made a covenant with him. The fourth time. But now God essentially descends to Abram's level in a way it's like He gets on His knees and looks Abram in the face and He makes the covenant with Abram in a way that He can understand. He makes a covenant with Abram in a way that people in Abram's culture did make covenants. It's God's fatherly ministry to a real fear that was in his heart. And he said, Abram, I promise you, with everything in me, by my very being, I promise you that the things I've said to you are true. And your offspring will be vast, and your reward will be very great. At this time, God caused a great deep sleep to fall on Abram, and he showed him in a dream probably, or in a vision that His people would prosper in the land of Canaan, but that they would be sojourners, strangers there. And someday they would be brought down into Egypt and taken as slaves, where they would live for four centuries. After suffering for so long, the Lord would then deliver them back out of the hands of the Egyptians with great prosperity, even as Abram had descended into Egypt and came out with great prosperity. God showed him everything. And then one more time, he reiterated the greatness of his promises and with that, chapter 15 ends. Now I really do believe that at this point of the story, Abram believed the Lord because Moses said that he did. We'll see next week and in the coming weeks that some doubt still remained. But I do believe that when God so powerfully spoke to him, it moved Abram's heart and Abram believed and God credited to him as righteousness. And beloved, I'm just so touched by the ministry of the Lord in Abram's life at this point because he well could have rebuked him for not believing. Just like with any of us, God has made us so many promises and when we doubt, God could well just come and rebuke us, but he doesn't do that. He's a father. He's a gentle, loving, patient father. And so he condescended to Abram and touched his heart in a way that really ministered to his life. If we're all being honest, I think that probably each of us also have doubts that get right to the heart of the promises that God has made to us in Christ. And He has made us very great promises in Christ. Among other things, the Lord has told us that through simple childlike belief in Christ that we have been made alive spiritually That we have been resurrected with Christ. And to me, even greater, that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places where we rule with Him and reign with Him. It's hard for me to even get my mind around what that means. We've been told in Colossians 3 that we have died with Christ and our lives are hidden with Him in God. And that when He appears again in the sky of the earth so that every eye sees Him, we too will appear with Him in glory. We've been told that through belief we have eternal life in Christ and that we will live with Him forever. We're at His right hand. There are pleasures evermore. We've been told that as a body of Christ, we are just that. We are His body. We are His bride. We are His temple. And we will rule with Him and reign with Him forever. And besides this, He's made us many promises about life on this earth. Like, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. Now, beloved, these are very great promises, and they're true promises. They're just as true as every promise God ever made to Abram. But the thing I want to put my finger on here this morning is that I think, like with Abram, many of us have severe doubt about some of the core pieces of those promises. I think we would mostly all nod our heads in belief and agreement that yes, God has made those promises, and yes, they are true. But if our hearts were revealed, there are doubts there. And what I want to say to us this morning is that living a life of faith means living a life where we express our doubt to God. He's not afraid of it. He's the one who brought the doubt up in Abram's relationship with him anyway. Abram was trying to hide it from the Lord. The Lord exposed it. And I hope we learn this lesson. God is not afraid of our doubts. Do you really think He doesn't see them in your heart anyway? He does. He sees them and He cares. And He knows how to minister to those parts of our hearts. And I think like with Abram, He wants a fullness of joy for us. And He knows for us to have a fullness of joy, those doubts have to be dealt with. It's kind of like the promises of God are a great meal filled with all kinds of things that are nutritious for your body, but doubt is like a little bit of rat poison that's sprinkled on the meal. It kind of ruins everything. God has to get the doubt out to increase our joy, and He will do that. And I just want to encourage you to be honest with the Lord with your doubts. Like Abram, expose the depth of what you're really thinking to God and just watch Him. He will respond to you in His own time. I've seen him do this so many times in my own life, and I just want to commend to you, go to the Word, read the Word, expose your heart to God, seek the counsel of others, wait upon the Lord, and I promise you, he will address the real concerns in your heart, and he will strengthen your faith. Our time is out, but I, I wish I had a little bit more time to tell you a story or two. Beloved, I'm telling you, there are times when I felt about an inch away from not even being a Christian anymore, because my doubts were so severe. I've told you before that one day I came home when I was in seminary. I'm spending my life preparing for ministry, and because of some things we were reading and thinking about as a class, I had thunk myself into such a deep hole I didn't know how to get out of it. And I came home and said to Kim one day, "Kim, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian anymore." That was tragic for me. I was training to be a pastor. But I had doubts. God understood those doubts. And all I'm saying, beloved, is He honored my process. And He came and helped me. I will never forget the day that I took my bike down to the marina in Berkeley and sat there at night for about six hours with the Lord and just listened to Him minister to me and deal with the depth of the doubt I was experiencing at that time. And from that moment forward, I never doubted Him in that way again because He ministered to me. And I'm telling you, beloved, if you'll expose your doubt to Him, He will minister to you as well and greatly increase your faith. Today we've seen that living a life of faith is about love. It's about trusting in the Lord. It's about not needing to cling to the things of this world. It's about worshiping God and honoring Him in all things. And we've seen that living a life of faith is being honest about the true states of our heart. And I do think that in order to live this kind of life, we, like Abram, have to receive this word from the Lord because I think it's not only for him, but also for us. Beloved, fear not. The Lord is our shield. And your reward for simple, childlike faith in Jesus Christ will be very, very great. The Lord is our lover. He's our provider. He's our protector. He's our treasurer. He's our forgiver, our teacher, our guide. He is our Father. And because He is so faithful, we can have faith in Him. And that's all faith is. Faith is simply trusting in the faithfulness of God. That's it. And that's at the end of the day, that's about love. It's about a God who loves us and a God whom we love because He has first loved us. So, as a way of expressing and igniting faith in us today, I thought we would end by singing the song, I Love You, Lord. And I just want to encourage you as we sing to just really sing it to the Lord. Just express your heart to Him. Tell Him how much you love Him and pray that your love for Him would increase. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, I thank You for this Word and the effect that it's already had in my life as i prepared. I thank You for ministering so deeply into my heart over the last days and into my lifestyle. And I pray that now that the blessing You've given to me would overflow to many here at the church. Lord, I pray that Your Word by Your Spirit would have its effect and I pray that You would cause us to be people of faith. Lord, Abram was no superhero. He faltered in faith at several points, but he was a man who truly loved you. And I pray that we would be men and women who truly love you as well. And I pray that out of love for you, Father, that we would walk by faith in you all the days of our lives. Father, please make this be true. In Jesus' great and gracious name we pray, amen.